Well, did you, well, you, when you were growing up, I mean, those people from the 50s must have been people you were listening to and your idols were Why don't you roll this on that? We're rolling. We're rolling. My, to me, the greatest people that ever lived is Fats, and in this order, Fats Domino, Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, and an occasional James Brown. Because I say that about James Brown because he has survived all of the all of the generations because he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with a record in the top 20. Um, so his career really never stopped getting hits. But he has tremendous influence on 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 more than just the people like me. You know, it has gone into the 70s and the 80s, but these five, if they chiseled out a rock of people, these, these five people should be the, the image of what rock and roll is and what it has become because of these people. Because when rock and roll happened, they were at the hallmark of it. They were the beginning of it. Whatever blues led up to it, whatever led up to rock and roll, some cream please, and whatever led up to it, these people were directly responsible. You know, I just came back from five or six people. Be because they, their rock and roll, I remember in 1955, I was 14 years old. I went nuts. I mean, I, talking about it now, I can feel the fine hairs on my body just rise from that because it was the birth, the very beginning of rock and roll. and. And these people were the masters of it. They are the are the sultans of swing. And and you were in Philadelphia listening to the radio and watching the bandstand or doing what? As a rock and roll crazy person, yeah. on the radio listening to everything that I could, with this great ambition. It's 1955. This great ambition to be singing rock and roll. I never thought that six short years away that it would happen. Furthest thing from my mind, but Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, the Moon Glows. Well, you had, you had oh, I had a group called um, Quantrells. And uh, we sang all these, what they call today doo-wop, but we were a group that sang without music, a cappella group, and we were, we were hot. There's only one band we couldn't beat, and they were called the, well, the Valets. We couldn't beat them. They beat us every time. We just we had talent shows at a at a theater called um, oh, I don't remember, but it's on 40, 41st and Lancaster Avenue, and we had talent shows. We couldn't beat the Valets, but other than that, we're the hottest. And, and you didn't write so much, did you? Uh, did you write songs then? I was never a writer. I was never a writer of songs. I was a great interpre interpreter of people that could write and could not sing. But um, it's always been that way. I just never had any writing talent. And I think when I first started with Cameo Parkway, I wanted to be a writer, but I was told that I was just wasn't, I didn't have the talent. So I never, it never bothered me. I didn't really care about it. But where did you hook up with Bernie Lowe and that label? I, I worked in a poultry market. Yeah. <laughs> um, I worked in a poultry market and my boss, Henry Colt, knew Cal Mann. And they could never get me to shut up. I was singing 
everybody's songs all day long. I mean, as I worked, I sang. I just sang all the time. That's all I did. I call it my friend and I is my voice. And, and when there's no one around but us, we entertain each other. And that's how um, I, I got into the music business. Dick Clark needed someone to do a Christmas card for him. And they needed someone to do impressions. And so Dick Clark told Cameo, and Cameo told, they talked about it. Then they called my boss, and my boss says, hey, go up to Cameo Parkway and, and do this little record for Dick Clark. He's making a Christmas card in the form of a record, and he needs someone to do impressions. I showed up, doing my Fats Domino. This lady walks in the room, she says, you chubby? He says, yes, chubby check like Fats Domino. I never paid any attention to to that, and then she says, Chubby check like Fats Domino, and she, she walked out of the room, and that was the end of it. Another week later, or maybe several weeks later, we made a record called The Class. We did a theme on Mary Had a Little Lamb, and it was my first record. I guess I was just going into the 11th grade, and the record came out, and it was a little hit, and I saw the test press, and it says, Chubby Checker. Says, come on, says, hey, look, Ernest Evans, nobody cares about him. Chubby Checker. And I said, the Checker, that lady, did you see how that was Mrs. Dick Clark? It sort of stuck, and it was the beginning of my record career. That was the first Mrs. Dick Clark. That's with Barbara Clark. Gave the your first. Title. That's right. <laughs> yes. What we, we always knew was the fast down to take off. Didn't know whether you had picked it, but you had been dubbed by Barbara. Yeah, well, my boss, um, Tony Anastasi, who was my boss in the produce market on 9th and Christian Street called me chubby when I started working for him I said I don't like that he said you're working for me and I'm the boss and your name is chubby and that's it and I was like maybe 10 and then you know six years later the checker was I, I've often said that the public has given me everything even the name well the class was a reasonable hit I mean it was out there it was in the national charts what did this do to a young kid in Philly in his neighborhood and what was it doing to you to have a I hated it. I hated that song I hated it because I could never find a talented enough band to put it together to make it work. It was like a special piece of material that was a hit. It's very difficult to put, do that on stage and it took a lot of talent to do that. But I wasn't very impressed with the song because I was doing impressions of other people that I wanted to be like. It was like sort of a, 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 a blow to my ego, you know. And at this time, I, at that time in my life, I thought, I, I was kind of like uh, an Ali kind of guy in my own way. I said, too great to be singing like those guys. They're singing that stuff, you know. And then what was worse, the next two records were nothing. And here I am, I've gone through the 11th grade with this record, and now we're between 11th and 12th grade. My friends, hey Ernie, you ain't got no hit record. Huh? Ah, you're finished, uh huh? And I said, God. Yeah, Ernie, you gonna get a hit record? You got no hit. Man, you're not gonna be up in the chicken store the rest of your life. Said, oh, please. And just about graduation time, night I had was graduating. I was worried because you know I needed I, you know I always worked. It's difficult, chubby checker working in chicken market again. It was just, the record just screwed up my life. I couldn't couldn't do what I wanted to do anymore because people had they knew me. I was on TV, and um, it was after Christmas in 1959, and and. Um, Cowman called me from Cameo. He said, "Look got this record, The Twist. It says, Hank Ballard did that tune. 
He said, yes, but he says, you know, I think we can put a little dance to this because the kids are doing a little thing that we think that we could tell the people what it's like and you can add something to it and, and really do something with it. It's all right. And he said, well, look, the track is cut. Everything's done. After New Year's, come up here. I'll call you. So I'm home. And then it was um, in January. Called me up right after New Year's. Says, let's come, come down to the studio. I already knew the tune because Hank Ballard was my favorite, one of the favorite X-rated singers from the 50s. He did songs like Annie Had a Baby, Can't Work No More, and you couldn't sing lyrics like that, you know. Um, uh, Work With Me, Annie. I mean, things like that. And the kids loved it, of course, because it was smut. And we loved it, but, you know, uh, the radio stations, you know, didn't play that. But the kids got it right away. And he and I liked his music, and I, and, uh, I went in um, to Cameo Parkway and... And I said, okay, here it goes, let's go. They had the right key. I went in, I did it three times. There's a flat note, so daddy's sleeping. He says, a flat note. I said, it doesn't matter. And I walked out of the studio, because we did a song um, about two months ago called The Toot. My baby's got the cutest little toot. I really liked that song, it was cute. It had something, it was kind of a novelty song. And um, I walked out of the studio, and I said, that's it, I'm going home. And uh, before I knew it... Um, well, if you hadn't shown up, then they might have brought somebody else. They had the tracks all cut, they had the song, they could have been somebody else. Kind of, kind of strange, though. You know, the, the track was... They had a vision in mind. They wanted, they wanted me to do the tune. They, had, they knew that, that I had the right appearance for the tune. I, they, they had the idea that I had the, the appeal... Uh, for the audience to do this tune because I had already been on TV it had I have already shown that I could entertain an audience and it was a, they had it all picked out no they didn't know but they wanted me to do this tune because of what I had done already and I had appeal to a, not just to one type of audience but I had a broad appeal from that record the class and so they thought that it would be the right song for me to do, and they had picked the key out and everything, and I just went in and did it. Now you listened to it, and did they explain what the dance was going to be? Well, my brothers, yeah. Tracy and Spencer, we already had worked out something. The problem was, how did we explain it to the audience? How did we? How could we explain this movement that we had got from this record to the audience? And I don't know who came up with it, but it was somebody came up with it and says. If you put out a cigarette at both feet, coming out of the shower, wiping off your bottom with a towel to the beat of the music, that little formula literally changed this planet. I mean, we, I, I must watch myself when I say that I'm responsible for dancing the way it is. Um, it's too, it seems to be too much of a, a statement to make. How could you have created dancing as we know it? And then I say to myself, why not? How could I not have? You know, who did it before me? Who, who started dancing apart? Who did it? I mean, I don't remember anyone else, else doing it. I don't remember, I can't remember anyone else separating people on the dance floor. But the strange thing to each of you was that the first time around with that record, it was just the kids and then people started picking up for the first time adults picked up on anything it was well no they didn't pick it wasn't the adults it was 
you see before it wasn't it wasn't the Hank Ballard record that got people dancing it was in 1960 when we came around that the kids started to do it but what what happened God bless Shaja Gabor and I always say that my favorite lady that she was the spark that lit the fire that flamed the twist on an international level. She went to the Peppermint Lounge. She did the twist in 1961, and Earl Wilson was there watching, and and Joey D was on stage playing some of my records because they were the only twist records around at that time. And um, she did the twist at the Peppermint Lounge. Earl Wilson saw it, and he wrote it up around the world. And the next, the next, I was in Kansas doing a tour with. Um, Elvis's road manager, Lamar Fike, and it was, I'll never forget it, he was driving, no, he was just a road manager for Elvis, and I was hearing, it. I know all about Elvis, I knew everything about him, because all we, it was just him and I in this Ford car, and all we did was talk about Elvis, and I was in Kansas doing a little show, and it was snowing outside, and it was a nice audience, yeah, it was a nice audience inside, and the guy says, Chubby, guess what, guess what, he says, you're the biggest thing on the planet. I said, get out of here. He says, you have no idea what's going on. This was after Zsa did the twist of my lounge. I was, you know, on about my career and doing this, my career. I said, so what? He says, you have no idea what's going on. I said, well, we're going to be home in a couple of days. When I got home, I couldn't get my front door. I said, what's going on? I said, the twist is such a big... He says, get out. What's the big deal, you know? It's just, it's just a record, it's just a dance. I do a doo-wop show. I do the Royal Year Group. I don't know if I can do it out here at the end of the year as well. And I, because it was interesting to me to meet these people. Chubby, having had that history that he had from that period as a teenager, as I did in some ways, but then I have been with writers and interviews who have come to me, because well, Chubby and I got together seven years ago, and they've explained to me his history that I didn't really know about, because I would go to record companies and offer us and try to make deals based on the fact that there was a market. You do a million and a half dollars on the road this year. There's got to be a lot of people out there that laugh. Nobody understands. And I would go to record companies and say, Here's the idea, you don't want to spend money since the disco was it had just kind of gone down and certainly you would know. And I would go when they were talking about you no more tour support, no more, you know, we don't want to spend all the money anymore. I'd say, well, tourist support well, is nothing we need. I can go record breaks in St. Louis, I can get there in a minute. I can do a car show hundred miles out of town for ten grand for Friday and Saturday, go and do your rock club for nothing. And we'll donate the tourist station of the period, certainly. Um, it was at the forefront, and yes, it was after the end when music died, as Don McLean said, Buddy Holly had gone down, which I'm sure you made these observations, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and Big Buck. Elvis had gone into the army, Chuck Berry had been ostracized for transporting a minor across state lines, Jerry Lee Lewis had married his cousin and was ostracized, rock and roll had died. It was a down period, absolutely. Down period, and and it had been something that had been. If you look at all the one of that movie we worked on, Chubby, we had the good times. Well, they had done all the old footage where the preachers were burning records and were doing record burnings, and they wanted to kill it. Why? It was music for youth in the early days of music when you were there and all there to control these people. It was the first time youth had their own particular music. Obviously, it was rebellious, certainly, and the adults didn't want anything to do with it. And now comes up what Joe was just saying, and that is. 
Okay, and then all the rock stars that they, you know, they got Elvis in the army and everybody was ostracized. Rich, little Richard had gone into the seminary. And what happened? Pardon me for this, Chuck, but as somebody who wasn't quite the white idol, who wasn't the black army, I was right in between the perfect, the future child. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, you were. Comes along, heavy set, so there's no, as you've told me, wasn't any interference because the mother didn't have to worry about their kids. Not too oversexual, although they're right. It was fun, he was happy, he was smiling. And two years later, you're right. Parents picked up the record for the first time. It became trendy from Shaja to, uh, to uh, Leonard Lyons and Wilson and Charlie Knickerbocker writing about the people that were in those clubs. And what happened, what you kicked off, was the whole dance business, the discotheque business, the style of clothes. Yeah. That they had it when you talk about it, and it would never have happened if it were just a kid's thing. It wouldn't have happened, though. Because it kids have don't have the economic clout. And what kids will do is go through the period and it'll be over and something else will come up. But you turned on adults, and that's... I don't know if you ever realized the impact of what you're doing when you're doing it. Well, the impact... And, you were at the, you were at the, and it's also because you were at the forefront. I think I can feel it today that I've never stopped feeling it because adults have always always come to my show and they have brought their kids and they and the and the and the young people that are young people that are curious come out and strange enough you know I, I, I didn't really realize this until maybe a year ago that there was a twenty two dollar ticket for Chubby Checker and I went I said see, see you know what they're getting for? I'm serious so you're getting tickets for I said what fifteen dollars someplace else twelve dollars I said that's a lot of money and I look out and all those people are there. I wish I never would have known that because I go out and have fun. But if I know what they're paying, it's a, it's a, it's a, another pressure for me. It's another pressure for me, you know. And, yeah. You, I, sometimes I say, you know, they're paying $15 to get in. But what it does for me, it does this. It says that I have an adult audience. Um, the people that have made a lot of money and people that are making a lot of money come to see me. And because of it, I have a real easy life, nice life. Going back then again, when this, the first time around, this record made number one, and you followed that up with uh, Huckabuck, you said top 20 record. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Pony Time. And uh, Pony Time, you know, I, mm -hmm. I've got the whole chronological list yeah. of the records. Uh, I'm trying to remember, what was this doing in Chubby Checker's life? There was no danger of going back and plucking chickens anymore. What was it doing in your life? It screwed up my life. Those few short years, those eight, from, from, from 1960 until this happened again, my life was really ruined. Because before that, um, I was with GAC. I was I was booked in the Copacabana, the big nightclubs that that Frank Sinatra visited and Sammy. Did. I was on my way to be a big nightclub performer. I had that personality. The twist came along and just wiped it out because it got so out of proportion. I says, no one's ever believed I have talent. It's going to take years for me to prove that I do. I thought I have, that I'm a talented performer, so it really hurt me a lot. You had to carry that weight. It hurt me a lot. And all the albums seem to be part of this part. That yeah. Part of well, the great significance is that out of all that, out of all that fire, out of the ashes came a three-letter word for me: fun. That Chubby Checker was a fun artist. That Chubby Checker was Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Apple Pie. And out of that, I says, hey. Let me take this lemon and turn it into a nice lemon thing so that when you walk into my building, it's full of beautiful things that, that I have become. And out of that, 
the talent that I've always wanted to show will come out of that. And I'm in a situation right now, it started in 1982 when we made this album for MCA, that Chubby Checker is, is slowly emerging into even more than what he was, I think. When, uh, in 61, 62, were you acting like a star? I never had that problem. I, 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 I don't want to appear to be a cocky kind of person, but I've always, I always knew what I wanted, always knew where I was going. There was no doubt about it. Um, when we, we came up as, as farmers out of South Carolina, we were, I think, the head of the economical structure in our area. My dad had a farm. We had people working for us. I was used to having things. It wasn't, it wasn't a real big deal for me. All I wanted to do at that point, I wanted to be as great as Sammy Davis Jr. That's what I was looking. I wanted to be as great as Harry Belafonte and 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 Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra and Vic Damone and and and, and people like that. That's what I was looking at because I knew at that point I was very small, inexperienced because. When I went to see their shows, I knew I had 10, 20 years to go before I could match that. So, with all my fame, I was very, very humble. Sometimes it's hard to be that with all the machinery around you that feeds you and pumps you. Nothing ever takes my feet off the ground. I, no matter what, I, I go in my room and go, ah! And when I come outside, I say, no matter what you say, everybody goes to the bathroom. Don't ever forget that, you know? And when you go out there, you're out there alone, and no one can help you but you. You can get briefed, you can get this, you can get that. When you're out there, the weight's on your shoulders. And with me, as a young man, from the time I was six years old, I've always made my own living, so the weight's always been on me. So I was very used to it. Did you resist when they kept throwing you, uh, so twisting, limbo, Popeye, all the dance things? Did you, did you battle to get some, hey, give me a, a song that Sammy Davis would sing? We, we did that. We took, we, I had um, uh, a man named Lou Spencer, who, who, who danced with the, um, the Nicholas, Nicholas Brothers. And he was my teacher. And over a period of three years, I spent maybe over $150,000, $200,000. And he traveled with me, and he was my teacher. And, he, and we did songs from Bye Bye Birdie. We did songs from uh, How to Succeed in Business with, along with my Twist Records. And we did special material, so we didn't lose. I got taught very well and a very disciplined kind of performance. And one day, I told him, I don't need you anymore. He says, why? I said, I think I can make it from here alone. But without him, and without that guidance, I never would have made it. Who was putting together all the, this whole merchandising campaign? A guy named Hank Saperstein, who started doing some of the Beatles things in the theater. He, um, he did um, help or something in the theaters or whatever it was. The first guy that did Close Circuit, he did all of the merchandising things for us. That was enormous, right? It was, it was just, you know, it was, I just didn't understand it all. You know, I didn't, I never understood what all of the screaming was all about. I just, I really stuck close to what I did best. And the other things we talked about, I said, well, you made money at this, as a fine, put in the bank, do this, do that. I was not very that interested. Did you get paid? You know, I got paid, yes, I got paid. And, um, I didn't get a lot of it, and a lot of it I did get. And, and, and when there's so much, it doesn't matter, especially when you're 23, it doesn't really matter. But um, out of all of it, it's 1986, and, and there is still more mileage. There is still much more. Um, I never 
I don't think that I ever really reached the top. And all of that fire and all of that whirlwind, Chubby Checker never really made the top. I'm still looking for that. It hasn't happened for Chubby Checker yet. It was a great introduction, but it hasn't happened yet. Not to me. I don't. I can't feel that. How was it when it all fell apart? Well, it fell apart so far as the record industry was concerned, but I had put on so much into my character as a performer, it didn't matter. Because in 1966 and 67 and 68, immediately, I got a van, I got a band, I got a sound system, and I played in little dives everywhere. And there weren't enough of them, because Chubby Checker was booked everywhere, and I played them every night. And it was a whole new career for me. I was a performer that I didn't care. I says, I'm a performer first. I don't care. I'm not working at the stadium. So what? What was I what was I what did I want to be to begin with anyway? The performer. The performer, the artist, the entertainer. That's got nothing to do with big stadiums. It's got nothing to do with big theaters. It has to do with playing for an audience, one-on-one. -on -one. And that's what I did best. So immediately the guy said, well, you're not booked here anymore. I says, well, so? So what are we going to do? I said, well, you know, you're not going to make much money here. I says, so? What does that mean? I know it's more money than I made in the chicken market, and it's more money than I'm going to make doing anything else. Did you work with the 70s? I played all the time. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, it, and it was more money than the President General Motors was making. So you know what I did? I got a band together. I got a van together. I got a sound system together. And we played every nightclub in this country and outside of this country, and we made a great living. And out of the ashes of that, I find myself doing rock revivals, and the people that had fallen apart when the Beatles came along and, and they didn't know what to do, I was like a whole new career for me. I emerged victorious when I played with the people that were, the people that are, that are still my idols. They says, Chubby, what kind of show you put? And that's a show, I because my music had grown through all of that. And I realized that my music had also taken on a certain change, that it fit the times. The twist was the same twist, but it wasn't. It was like, it was a difference in a, in a 1960 caddy and 1971 caddy. It had changed, but it had changed for the best. All through the years, you perform the twist and the pony and let's twist again? I've never stopped it. You get crazy with them at all? No, it's it's my art. It's my art, and until I have something else to sing, I'm going to sing that. Not because I have to sing it, because I love it. Because if I was doing this and I hated doing it, I'd quit right now. I would quit. So God help me, I would quit. If I didn't love it, I would quit. When I was four years old, my mother took me to a show in in South Carolina, Andrews, where I was born. And I saw a little kid named Sugar Child Robinson. He does exist. Many people don't know that. He was a child pianist, and he wore white tucks and tails, about 12 years old, 11 years old. And he did a boogie-woogie piano. And at that point, my life changed, and I was never the same. And that carried me through all these years up to this point. You know? and, and you say it, but have there been points of discouragement? Am I I thought that there are times when I just stopped and thought, I mean, is it worth it going on? 
And in the back of my mind, it says to me, Chubby, these people don't even know what you're all about. They, they have no idea that a, a guy like you, from where you're from, and what you represent could even be as great as you are in what you do. Just keep doing what you little voice tells me, keep doing what you're doing, and they will come around again. And I got news for you, they have. And they haven't seen, and it hasn't even fully blossomed yet. I think there's just so much more, so much more to me. I mean, I can't, I'm getting to the point where I can't walk the streets. And I don't, and, I, and then again, like in the early days, I don't understand it. I mean, I, I don't tr totally understand it all, because I have everything I need. I it is amazing when you think you have been on the charts for years, nope. the MCA record, I know, crept on the yeah. bottom of the charts. I tell my, audi my, my audience that it was on the charts for a couple of minutes, yeah. <laughs> you know. It's a, it's it's a, a couple of minutes, you know. <laughs> but, you know, and I do some... I'm glad to hear you say that because the majority of people, all these years I've been playing, the majority of people don't know what I'm doing. They have no idea, which is great. I mean, I have entertained such a small, minute number of the population in this country, in the world, that when I get a record out, they're going to see, they're going to see, I didn't know he did that, and I think it's great. I'm glad. I'm half the fun is getting there because we're going to have records. We're going to do the radio again. I, I know that. And I'm having so much fun right now. I wonder, I wonder, and I, and I honestly wonder what it's, what it's all going to be like. You know, I have, I have almost a private life right now, almost. With the record, I think it's going to totally disappear. That um, it's going to disappear. What I enjoy most is not that. I don't enjoy the the autographs. I don't enjoy the that I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. I can't do anything privately like other people. That's not what I enjoy. I enjoy, and here he is. That's what it is. That's what turns me on. And here he is. And I walk out there, and I know, I know, I don't know why, but we know, this guy in here, we know that there is no other moment, and it doesn't matter how old they are or how young they are, it's the same thing. We just did a show in Vincennes, Indiana, Vincennes University, parent and student show. It only took 20 minutes, and you had young people and old people, they're all out of their seats, and I, and I had to turn around and look and says, I don't believe it, what's happening out there, but we know that the magic has never, ever died. And all it's going to take is maybe a record, and maybe not a record. I mean, we're doing pretty good as it is. But I know it's there, and it's never stopped working. It's, it's, it's been a real, it, it's, a, it's a real, genuine kind of honest response that I get from the people that I perform for. It's, it's hard to explain the magic, but it, I know it's there. Does it leave any room for any personal life? All this touring, it's what I want. It's what I really want. I, um, and more than want, more than want is what I need. I, I need to create every night rock and roll perfection. 
I, I would like to be the master craftsman that other artists come to watch so they can learn. Like I used to watch Sammy Davis, sit there and watch him. My eyes never, nef never left Nat King Cole, the way he walked across the stage. And you didn't realize by the time the song was over, he was over here, and you know how he got there. And one night I watched Fats, I watched um, Nat King, I watched um, Sinatra. I had just seen Elvis at the Hilton Hotel. Well, I was, I was playing with him. I was playing in the lounge with Wilson Pickett and the Kim Brothers. And I had gone to see Elvis on three occasions. And he was not having a good show. He wasn't having a good time. I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, I, I was not enjoying his performances. And, but one, the Beatles made me change my act. They made me change my whole style. Elvis made me realize that I was really a good performer. I didn't know it until I saw him. And I went over to see, and I went over to see Frank Sinatra, and he was everything I expected. He was everything that I expected. The lights were dark, and I was waiting to get that rush when I saw Elvis. I was waiting to get that rush, and everybody was, was tensed at Elvis's show. And he came out, and it never really happened. And I love the man. You know, I told you the five greatest people, he's one of them. But it never really happened. I felt like Ali going out spying with Ingemar Johansson and was making, a, making fun of him, and he was just too early. I didn't know how good I was. And I saw Sinatra, and then I realized how far I had to go. Because even at that time, this was 1974, and the drums went, and I heard something come fly with me. Let's take off for Peru. And the lights went, Gazzana! And and it hit me, and the curtains went zap, and it was a little band that was five pieces off. God, he's awesome. He's awesome. He was, he was. I'm getting. I feel from it now. It was. It was just. He was. He was just. It was just right. You know, it was right. And Elvis's show was right too. Everything was fantastic. I mean, the production. I mean, you. You know, it, the 2001 um, Odyssey Overture. It was. I was gonna say, God's coming, you know, and my God, I'm, and I couldn't hardly breathe. And the guy walks on stage, and and he comes out, and he says, Oh, see, 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 right? And I say, Yeah, he's gonna take off in a minute. Oh, I can't wait. Hound Dog is gonna kill us, and I'm, and I'm waiting, you know. And it never really happened. You don't have to be an adult to know what good is. If you're good, they know it. They don't care how old they are. They know it. They might say bad things about you before you go on, but you get up there, buddy, and you do it. And I was told that. I was told that. But for Sinatra to say that, he's a real professional. Now, I, 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 went, up to, I went up to visit Elvis at his place, because we were in the same hotel. Came upstairs, and it was, all, it, was a, it, it, was, it was very nicely handled. And he was very smart, Elvis was. He really knew how to change his outfits without changing. Because every time he put on a different scarf, his outside, it was, I don't know who did it. If, he, if Elvis did it, he was brilliant. He knew how to change his, his, himself like a magician in front of everybody. He was really a brilliant performer. He was very nice to look at. And he, and he did an Elvis on me, and I'll never forgive him for it. My only encounter with Elvis. I went up to see him. And I said, I said, tell Elvis I'm here. I want to see him. So, 30 minutes went by, 35 minutes went by, 40. Yeah, I waited. But I, well, the only reason I waited for him because I waited for Janis Joplin. 
at the Quaker City Music Festival, and I walked out on her, and I never saw her again. I said, I better not walk out on this guy, because you never know me, and I'll never see him again. I don't know that, because that's what happened with Janis Joplin, I remember that. So I told his father, I said, Vernon, you tell Elvis I was here. So I'm walking to the door like this. Out comes Elvis. The first word is, hey, you don't keep the damn star waiting, buddy. And he looked at me, and he was, and I, and I shot right at him. I says, hey, you know, you don't keep the star waiting, buddy. And he went, oh, well. I says, yeah, okay. So then I went back to his dressing room. He had a room back there. Linda was with him, and uh, Linda, his girlfriend, Linda, Linda Lovelace, her boyfriend, Alice Cooper, and Liza Minnelli. And we were all there talking. And I said to myself, you know, this might never, ever happen again. And we talked. It was a very nice meeting. I don't like to to take too much time. I just stayed and we talked and, and that was it. And then I, had, I, we, I walked out and I shook his hand and I had never seen him again after that. But um, it was a very nice meeting and um, I, I thought that um, he was very conscious of my performance because what he didn't do in the main room, I did in the, in the lounge. We had, because of all of his great fans came in, you know, I talked about Elvis and I say, Elvis was fantastic in there. And one, and one evening after my show, it was late in the night, and there was a guy sitting back there with some people around him, and Elvis was checking me out. You know, it was great. Tell me, is that that period, the, uh, the infamous three or four years, is it a blur to you now, or uh, do you think about it much? I don't. I think about, I would like to take that tremendous building that I erected and add new segments onto it. That's all I want out of it. That's all I want to do. I don't. I, I. I. love everything I've done. I can look back at everything I've done and says, "Hey, that was a good job." And it's such a good job. And to look what's happening today, you are directly responsible for dancing as we know it at this very moment. Now it is three o'clock Pacific Standard Time, but somewhere in Hong Kong, someone's dancing, and the only way they, they know how to do what they were doing or what they're doing now is because of a guy in L.A. right now talking to you named Chubby Chucker. I mean, I have a lot to look back forward, and and if I die at this moment, Chubby Checker will live on, not only in name, but in movement, so it doesn't really matter. I just want to add some, I want 1986, 87, 88, 89, I want to see Chubby Checker on the radio. I like to, for people, for masses of people to experience some of this energy that I've been crazy to give them on a mass level. Like 20,000 people to see what Chubby Checker does as the artist, you know. Not the myth, you know, not the flash, but the artist that has, that has grown and matured and has almost mastered the craft. That's what I want.